from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. This morning's first reading comes to us from the Old Testament. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 27, through to verse 13 of chapter 12. And if you wish to follow along in your pew Bibles, you can find the reading on page 272 of the Old Testament. Hear now God's word. <clears throat> when the morning was over, David sent and brought Bathsheba to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. He brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his meager fare and drink from his cup and lie in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was loath to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared that for the guest who had come to him. And then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I rescued you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your bosom, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never de depart from your house, for you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. And thus says the Lord, I will raise up trouble against you from within your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this very son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, Now the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, which can be found on page 76 in the New Testament portion of your pew Bibles. Let us continue to listen for God's word for us this morning. 
Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself was praying thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector standing far off would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other, for all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Everlasting God, break open your word for us this morning, that in encountering your truth, our hearts might be transformed as we come to hear and believe your gracious promises for your people and all of your creation. Amen. In our current sermon series, we have been exploring together what it might look like to lead like Jesus, to live out values surrounding leadership that we find embedded in Scripture and embodied in Jesus' life and ministry. Specifically, we're trying to describe together what servant leadership entails, what practices and perspectives and habits give expression to this idea of servant leadership in both concrete and theological terms. Last week, Tony began us on this journey as we considered the role of self-reflection and stewardship in the life of the leader. And this week, we're turning to the topic of authentic listening and persuasion. At their core, these two competencies, authentic listening and persuasion, are both about effective communication. And it's hard to imagine a good leader who does not excel at the art of communication. And I think this is as true in the classroom as it is in the boardroom or locker room. As a teacher, I know that what I sometimes try to say is not always what my students hear. For instance, consider some of these things that a class of fifth graders claim that they learned from their Sunday school teachers about the Bible. After getting out of Egypt, Moses went up to Mount Sinai to find the Ten Amendments. After, Moses died before he ever reached Canada. That's actually true. Moses never did get to Canada. Solomon, one of David's sons, had 300 wives and 700 porcupines. <laughs> and finally, my personal favorite, the epistles were the wives of the apostles. <laughs> now, I can't say for sure that Jesus had this problem with his disciples, but I am pretty certain that Jesus cared a lot about effective communication, both as a teacher and as a leader. When Jesus had something important to convey to the disciples, he rarely, if ever, paused and gave a, a 10-minute theological treatise. He rarely gave a several bullet points about what to do or not to do. Instead, when Jesus faced a problem or a question or a controversy, more often than not, he began by saying, let me tell you a story. There once was a man who had two sons. There once was a landowner who planted a vineyard. There once was a woman who had 10 coins. 
These short stories that Jesus so often tells are called parables. And in the Gospels, they make up the bulk of what Jesus was reported to have said. In fact, in the Gospels, the parables are 40% of Jesus' words. The parables, like any good story, are an effective means of communication for at least two reasons. First, on, and on the one hand, the parables grab your attention. The imagery, the characters, the plot, they kind of draw you into the story. And even if your mind has wandered, say, in a sermon, a good story will bring you back in, will give you that chance to jump back in and re-engage. And thus Jesus did with the parables. But the parables were also effective communication means for a second reason. Rather than providing black and white answers or settling disputes, the parables often opened up a dialogue. To put it differently, the parables didn't end conversations, they began conversations. I've often wondered when reading through the Gospels what sort of dialogue would have ensued right after Jesus was done teaching one of his parables. What sort of questions would the disciples have had for Jesus? What details in the story would Jesus have expanded on? And how together would they have thought through the applications of these stories? Unfortunately, we don't often encounter these follow-up dialogues in the pages of the New Testament. But I still think it's clear that the parables were meant to be conversation starters. And this is certainly true in our first scripture reading today from 2 Samuel. Let me give you a little bit of background. There we encounter a story about King David in a moment of crisis. He's coming off of a political scandal that entailed disturbing abuses of, a pow of power. He had committed adultery with Bathsheba, and then he oversees a cover-up campaign that includes things like denial, deception, and ultimately the arrangement for the murder of Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba's husband. As far as political scandals go, Watergate pales in comparison to what we might call Bathsheba-gate. Nathan, in his leadership position as a prophet, is well aware that something must be said. But he's also well aware that confronting the king could cost him his job, if not also his life. Calling out the king was risky business in the ancient world, so everything was riding on how Nathan began the conversation. And so he, like Jesus many years later, began with a story. There once were two men, one rich and one poor. And when a traveler came into town to visit the rich man, the rich man wanted to throw a banquet and a feast. But instead of taking one of the animals from his, his great and large property and flocks and herds, instead of taking one of his own animals, he takes the one little lamb that the poor man possessed, and that's what he prepared for dinner. Now, at this point, we know that the parable is working because David is being drawn into the story. In fact, so much so that David is outraged over the action of this rich man. In fact, at this very moment, David sends off a tweet. I mean, he says to Nathan, surely this man deserves to die. And at just that moment, Nathan, like a good storyteller, delivers the punchline, you are the man. Instantly, David realizes that he is the rich man who has taken what is not his, the body of Bathsheba, the life of Uriah. He is seized with guilt, and he confesses his sin. Now, if Nathan had begun by saying, David, you're an adulterer, 
David, you're a liar. David, you're a murderer. Nathan would have been right, but his speech would not have been effective. By drawing David into the story, Nathan pries open the shuttered windows of David's heart. And doing so didn't require teaching the king about justice and fairness. David, after all, already had a deep sense of what was just and what was fair. That's what got him so riled up about the actions of the rich man in the first place. Nathan didn't need to teach him about justice and fairness. Rather, he needed to tell a story that helped David realize that his own actions weren't aligned with his own values. This is the genius of what Nathan does. He doesn't need to teach the king any, anything. He just needs to tell a story to get the king to see his own faults and failures mirrored back to him in the story of this rich man. Getting David to this point is what make, makes Nathan an effective prophet. And I think we can also say an effective servant leader. Now, as it turns out, Jesus has a lot of Nathan in him. The parables he tells, likewise, are designed to start difficult conversations and to help disciples, and then us as readers, encounter truths about ourselves that we might otherwise miss. And in our second scripture reading, Jesus isn't challenging a king, but I think he is challenging the status quo of spiritual leadership during his day. As the story goes, two men go up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And we must keep in mind in these stories that the, that the Pharisees didn't have a bad reputation at this time. They were known for their strict observance of the law. They were known for piety. piety. They were people who would be in the pews every week on a Sunday morning. But they also were known at times for their off-putting self-righteousness. The tax collector, on the other hand, likely a Jewish man, would have been widely disparaged and despised, not only because the tax collector was participating with Rome in extracting a heavy burden of taxes on the people, but also because this collector, tax collector, like anyone, would have skimmed off the top and lined his own po pockets with some of the taxes collected. In either case, the story goes on, and it contrasts how these two individuals pray. The Pharisee says, thank you, God, that I'm not like this sinner. And the tax collector says, have mercy on me, God. I am a sinner. The conclusion packs a punch. Jesus says, I tell you, this man, and he means the tax collector, went down to his home justified rather than the Pharisee. Now, at first, it seems that the moral of the story here is much like the moral of the story that Nathan tells David. Those who exalt themselves, whether king or Pharisee, will be humbled. As Christians, what I think we often hear in this story is the message that it's better to be a repentant sinner than a self-righteous spiritual leader. And I think that's part of this story in many ways. But I think there are a couple problems, or at least we can get off track a little bit, when we hear that message in this story. First, I think when that's our message, it's better to be a repentant sinner than the self-righteous Pharisee. I think we can get done the story, we can lean back, draw a sigh of relief, and say, thank you, God, that I'm not like the Pharisee. And in saying that prayer, we're just like the Pharisee. We mentioned the same attitude that we found so objectionable in the first place. So that's the first thing. But the second problem with hearing this meaning of the story is that it loses sight of the punchline, a punchline that, unfortunately, 
can be lost in translation. In that last line in verse 14 where Jesus says, the tax collector went away justified rather than the Pharisee, that word rather than in Greek is the word para. And we actually know this word from English because we talk about things like parallel parking and parallelograms and, and so on and so forth. And in each of those cases in English, para means to put two things side by side, to put two things next to one another. And that's exactly what the word para means consistently in the New Testament. In fact, almost every other place we encounter the word para in the New Testament, it's translated alongside, not rather than. So let's hear that translation in that last line of the story and listen to how the meaning changes. Jesus says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went home down to his home justified alongside the other man. You see, this is not a story about either or, either the tax collector or the Pharisee. It's a story about both and. The point Jesus is making is not that God's grace falls upon only the tax collector. Rather, the point of the story is that God's grace falls upon both the Pharisee and the tax collector, not rather than. Both of these figures have virtue, the tax collector for his humility and prayer, the Pharisee for his pious living. Both characters have flaws, the tax collector for his exploitative greed, the Pharisee for his arrogance. But in God's eyes, the one flaw is not worse than the other. Both are justified sinners. Both are flawed characters in need of God's grace. So, I think the conversation that Jesus is trying to start with this story, this parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector, is, the prob is, a, is a conversation about the problem of either-or thinking. The problem of either-or thinking uh, in, in, in thinking about God. For in God's economy, salvation is not based on an either-or system. It's based on a both-and system. From the vantage point of servant leadership, this parable teaches us about the need to start difficult conversations about both-and thinking, whether in the church, whether at home, whether in the places we work, whether in our schools, whether in our communities. Perhaps now more than ever before, to avoid, we need to avoid the pitfalls of seeing others as either for us or against us. We need to avoid seeing political parties as either being completely right or completely and utterly wrong. And we need to avoid seeing churches as being completely faithful or completely flawed. For in the end, this parable is a parable about God's both and way of seeing us and seeing the world. Now, as much as these stories, the one by Nathan and the other by Jesus, are about persuasion, they also are about authentic listening. Think back to the story of Nathan and David. In order for Nathan's parable to work, David has to have ears to hear from the prophet. He has to be willing to find himself in the story, to draw that connection between the rich man who took a poor man's lamb and a powerful king who takes anything he wants. David had to be willing to listen, not just for the sake of gaining information, but for the sake of being transformed. That's authentic listening. But authentic listening is more than just listening carefully. Authentic listening has something to say about who we're willing to listen to. David is a deeply, deeply flawed king, but perhaps his greatest leadership attribute, perhaps the reason why we can still look to him as a model of leadership despite his many, many faults, 
is that he's willing to keep people around him who can and will say hard things about his life and leadership. He doesn't just surround himself with yes-men. He surrounds himself with people like Nathan who care enough to speak God's truth to David's power. The ability to speak in this way involves courage. It involves persuasive parables. And I think that reflects well on Nathan as a leader. But the willingness to keep people like Nathan around and to listen to him, even when he has hard words to say, I think reflects well on David's leadership. Similarly, the disciples like us today have to have ears to hear and be transformed by Jesus' parables. The parables don't give us straightforward answers. We actually have to slow down, pay attention, enter the story. In fact, one could say that the, the key to a transformative encounter with the parables is not going to seminary, is not knowing Greek, although that can help sometimes, but it's actually just turning the pages slowly and paying attention. It's that effort to imagine ourselves in the story, not as the heroes, but maybe precisely as the people who need realignment. When we do so, we realize that what Jesus is doing for us is much like what Nathan did for David long ago. Jesus, through the parables, is holding up a mirror to our lives so that in hearing those stories, we can see more clearly who we are, faults and prejudices in all. And maybe that's what a good leader does, using communication and occasionally a good story to help others see themselves more clearly. I want to end quickly with a couple of questions that invite us to ponder how these two scriptures challenge us to be servant leaders today. First, what sort of stories do we need to be telling to help start difficult conversations? Maybe difficult conversations in our churches. Maybe difficult conversations in our homes with our kids and with our spouses. Maybe difficult conversations in our neighborhoods and communities in our schools or our places of work. Starting these conversations will take courage, it will take patience, and it will take a full measure of hopefulness that God's Spirit will work through our stories, just like God's Spirit has worked through the story of Nathan and the stories of Jesus. Second, and finally, these scriptures invite us to ask, what sort of people do we need to be willing to listen to in this season of life? Who is it that can speak into our lives with hard words that can pry open the shuttered windows of our own hearts? Where would you have to go to keep company with people like Nathan? And what changes would you need to make in order to slow down enough to be drawn into Jesus' stories? Learning to listen authentically in this way is a competency. That's what this whole sermon series is about. But learning to listen this way is also an act of faith. Because listening in a way that can bring us to the point of conviction and confession requires a profound trust that in Jesus Christ we are fully forgiven and fully accepted, regardless of our faults and our flaws. Thanks be to God. Amen.
I've been reflecting throughout the morning about the power of gatherings like these, about the power of prioritizing worship in a regular way. Because I don't know of many other places where you can hear the Word of God spoken clearly through music, through improvisation, through hymns, through the Scripture, through prayer, through the Word proclaimed, to hear the Word that we need right now for our time. A Word that, remind, that we're reminded of in this final hymn, that we're called to keep bright the vision of the day that is yet to come. A vision of the kingdom of God. That is our work. That is our prayer. May the peace of God, which goes beyond all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ. May his peace live inside of you, of you this day and every day of your life. Amen.